This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to another edition of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Alan Pierce. I'm an attorney at Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem. We are a law firm uh, that represents injured workers in workers' compensation and related matters. And uh, we're happy to bring you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters with our guest today, Kathy Serbeck. Before we get into our topic, I just want to uh, give you a little background on our guest. Kathy Serbeck is an associate with the law firm of Friedman and Laurie, PC, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She has extensive experience representing both claimants and insurers and employers in all aspects of workers' compensation litigation, including mediation, appearing before the Workers' Compensation Appeal Board, Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania, drafting findings of fact, briefs to the workers' comp judge, and the appeal board. She also is a member of the American Bar Association TIPS uh, section. That is the tort trial and insurance practice section. She is the former chair of the workers' comp committee or section of TIPS. She is an active member in WILIG, which is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. And she has been inducted in uh, the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers as a fellow Um, which is a very prestigious honor for somebody who has demonstrated excellence in the practice of workers' compensation law and has had extensive experience. So having said that, Kathy, I want to welcome you to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. I'm looking forward to doing the show with you. Okay. And the topic that we're going to talk about today is one that Kathy helped put together at a meeting of the ABA, American Bar Association, midwinter meeting this uh, past March in Florida in conjunction with the college, and it was a discussion concerning a pretty important topic for those of us, no matter whom we represent in workers' comp, which is subrogation and liens that a workers' comp insurance company might have on the proceeds of any third-party settlement or judgment. But before we get into our topic, I want to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer, practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And also to PI Now, find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. Kathy, just so that we can get into this topic uh, right from the get-go, subrogation is a, um, a legal term. How would you define it? How is it used in the field of workers' compensation? So in the field of workers' compensation, what subrogation refers to is if you are injured on the job and you have the right or the opportunity to sue a third party other than your employer for this injury and you recover out of that injury, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, the Workers' Compensation Act states that you cannot recover twice for the same injury. In other words, you cannot collect workers' compensation benefits for your injury. And in Pennsylvania, workers' compensation benefits is defined as your wage loss benefits as well as your medical benefits. And also recover in a third-party case for your pain and suffering as a result of this injury. 
So what subrogation means in the state of Pennsylvania specifically is that the workers' compensation carrier has a right to recover all of the monies that they paid out for your injury against your third-party recovery. Now, that's that's limited to what they paid, less their pro rata share of the attorney's fees and costs for your third party. Okay. So that's going to acquaint us with, with a variety of concepts here. One is the inability of somebody injured at work to sue his or her employer, but the term third party is, is pretty much a term of art, so that generally speaking, third party represents some company or person other than the employer or a co-worker or the worker himself that caused the injury. So, you know, there are 50 different uh, state jurisdictions, not to mention other jurisdictions like federal workers' comp and railroad and some statutes where policemen or firefighters or other people that might be outside of the traditional workers' comp system get some type of wage replacement. Is it pretty universal that across almost all jurisdictions that the company responsible for paying workers' compensation benefits enjoys the subrogation rights to assert a lien on any third-party recovery that might arise out of the same injury? Yes, it's pretty universal across all 50 states that when we were preparing for our panel, we did an informal survey, and that was the general consensus. Yeah, I'm going to be coming back to that survey in a minute, and I will uh, identify its origin because some of our listeners might want to take actually a look at uh, a 50-state comparison of how uh, the different variables that go into what rights does an insurance company have in terms of money from a third-party settlement. It does vary from state to state. I also, before we leave the general topic in defining subrogation, uh, it's more than just the right of recovery by the insurance company, but subrogation, if you really get into the origin of the term, which I think goes back to Anglican law, or the English Court of Chancery, it's the ability for somebody or some company to substitute for another. And in certain situations, and Kathy, you can expand on this, if the injured worker himself doesn't bring a third-party action for whatever reason— the workers' comp insurance company, in bringing that action in its own name or in the name of the injured worker, is doing it under the concept of subrogation. They, in fact, are substituting the enforcement of their rights, which is reimbursement for the monies they paid out. So how does this work in Pennsylvania and or other cases if the injured worker does not bring a third-party claim or is late bringing a third-party claim? Some In some jurisdictions, I know the first entity, whether it's a workers' comp carrier or the injured worker to bring the claim, enjoys some rights uh, that the other may not have in terms of prosecuting the case and division of the proceeds. So let's talk a little bit about the insurance company taking the bull by the horns themselves. Okay. So what Alan's talking about is that, in other words, the insurance company is stepping into the shoes of the injured worker. And most of the time, the injured worker will pursue a third party on their own. Uh, there might be instances where they do not wish to pursue for whatever reason. One of the probably the most common ones is if it's some kind of family relationship or family company or a family, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, something like that. Uh, but specifically for Pennsylvania, though, if the injured worker does not choose to bring forward a third-party case when it is available for them, 
the insurance company cannot step into the shoes of the injured worker in Pennsylvania to bring a lawsuit for themselves. And that is not by statute, but that has been ruled by case law. So you're saying in Pennsylvania, the insurance company cannot bring the action. It's, it's exclusive to the injured worker. Yes. In Pennsylvania, uh, it is exclusive only to the injured worker. And that is um, by case law. Like I said, uh, the Supreme Court, I believe, ruled on that matter, that if the injured worker does not wish to bring forward a third-party case, the workers' comp carrier cannot step in their shoes. And or if it is a self-insured, they cannot step in the shoes. That seems to be a very minority view. Yes. I don't know if any other state has that in place. And I took a glance at the survey that Alan and I referenced, and I think that we are the only state. And in fact, this survey does not indicate that there's a right for the carrier to sue directly. It has changed. Now, in Alabama, for example, once the statute of limitation expires for the third party, and in most cases, a statute of limitations for bringing forward a suit with regard to a third party case, for example, a motor vehicle accident or a products case is usually two years. Once the two-year statute of limitations has expired in Alabama, the workers' compensation carrier can bring a lawsuit in their own behalf uh, up to six months after the expiration of the statute of limitations. So in other words, if I was an injured worker in Alabama today and I got hurt, but I chose not to, and I got hurt because someone hit my car while I was performing the duties of my job, and I chose not to bring forward a lawsuit two years from today or March 29th, 2021, and for the following six months, so that would put us March, April, May, June, July, August, September, up until September 28th, 2021, the workers' compensation carrier can bring forward a third-party lawsuit on my behalf to recover what they had paid out in workers' comp. Now, and you mentioned a, a very common scenario where this occurs is a motor vehicle accident. Somebody driving a vehicle in the course of his or her employment, be it a company vehicle, their personal vehicle, a truck or whatever. If they're involved in a motor vehicle accident where another party is at fault, they would collect their workers' comp benefits, which would be a percentage of their wages, plus um, medical bills would be paid. And that is money that the insurance company pays that becomes part of their lien. That total amount of money, let's say they paid... $8,000 for lost wage benefits and another $6,000 of medical benefits, they have a lien of $14,000. When the worker who is driving the car brings a claim against the car that struck her in the rear, they're seeking damages for additional monies, including pain and suffering. So let's assume there's a $20,000 recovery in that lawsuit and that the workers' comp insurance company has paid $14,000. Who gets what? So if, if this happened in Pennsylvania, the workers' compensation lien of $14,000 needs to be satisfied in total, less the pro rata share of the fees and costs. So, for example, if this was my firm, out of the $20,000 recovery for the motor vehicle accident, we would take 40% of that 20000 which represents our fee, so that would be $8,000 in fees that we would deduct. And then let's say we spent $100 in costs. That would be added to the 8000 
for a total of $8,100. In Pennsylvania, in order to calculate the net recovery for the workers' comp lien, we have a formula that has been set forth by the Bureau of Workers' Comp that we put in all the numbers. So the $14,000 that the workers' compensation carrier paid out, they don't get it back dollar for dollar because they have to take into account their pro rata share of the fees and costs that was expended to get the $20,000. Yeah, so 14,000 is 70% of 20, so they would get they would have be responsible for 70% of the fees and costs on their recovery and the insurer uh, the employee would bear the other share yes. of costs. Yes. Now what what happens for example if the injured worker is still collecting workers' comp so that the workers' comp lien keeps growing even after the settlement. Maybe medical bills were not closed via a settlement. Does the insurance company have a right to any of the monies the injured worker received in the third-party settlement that was in excess of the lien uh, going forward? Is there a formula for that? There is a formula for that. And that formula, again, in Pennsylvania has just changed by case law, the Supreme Court just ruled that in that scenario, the workers' compensation carrier is not entitled to a future credit against medical costs. That is a distinctly minority view. In fact, it may be the only one of view. only a handful. <laughs> it, may, it may be the only view, yeah, because pretty universal around the country, especially in Massachusetts, where, of course, I practice. In our case, it's called a hunter offset. Usually this provision to pay back monies from a third-party settlement after the case is settled usually is a formula that's devised either by statute or through case law. And in Massachusetts, we had the so-called Hunter case. If you go around the different jurisdictions, uh, you can see that it's a reference to either the statutes or uh, the cases. This is a, a good point to take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, we'll continue our discussion with Kathy Serbeck regarding workers' comp liens and subrogation. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce talking with Kathy Surbeck regarding uh, workers' compensation, subrogation, and third-party settlements. Uh, When we left off, we were talking about the ability of the workers' comp insurance company after a third-party settlement to reach some of the excess money the injured worker received. I know in Pennsylvania, you had mentioned a recent court decision limited 
the recovery rights to future medical benefits only, so that if an um, injured worker had some future wage loss or indemnity benefits, those would not be captured after a third-party settlement. Is that my understanding of this recent case in Pennsylvania? So it, the recent case in Pennsylvania only deals with future medical. If there is still, if the injured worker was still entitled to receive wage loss benefits, the workers' comp carrier would still be able to capture some of that against the excess of the third party, but not the medical. Oh, they would? Oh. Yes. And then depending okay. on the severity of the injury, the medicals could be very, very large, but they're not able to capture any of that. Okay. So let's, let's sort of get back to the damages that uh, a worker would incur that would be civil damages as opposed to uh, workers' comp damages, which again are limited to a percentage of wage loss and, and medicals. Typically, in a workers' compensation claim and a third-party injury, the injured worker may have a family member, either dependent children and or a spouse, uh, who might also be plaintiffs for their losses of consortium, and also as part of the damages that an injured worker might suffer outside of the workers' comp system would be something that generically we call pain and suffering. So how does the how do the various states deal with taking, let's say, a third-party settlement of $100,000 and a workers' compensation lien of $50,000, what are the obligations on the injured worker's attorney to delineate how much of the $100,000 settlement is for family loss of consortium and for pain and suffering, and how does that reduce the insurer's uh, recovery rights, the workers' comp insurer's recovery rights? Alan, that's an excellent question. And that, again, is determined by which state you're in. Each state has specific either statute or case law that deals with this. In Pennsylvania, my state, we do not apportion anything for loss of consumption or pain and suffering. The workers' compensation carrier's right to the third-party recovery is 100%, and it's a dollar-for-dollar credit, less their pro rata share that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, though, if you're in a state like Georgia, which has a made whole statue, in that particular case, then arguably the workers' compensation carrier does not have a subrogation lien because of the pain and suffering apportionment of that third-party recovery. In the state of Colorado, the lien is only recoverable against economic damages and not for pain and suffering. So, for example, if you have a $100,000 settlement or recovery and it is found or apportioned that $50,000 of that is for pain and suffering, even though the workers' compensation carrier might have already paid $100,000 of workers' comp benefits, they would only be entitled to $50,000 of that because $50,000 was non-economic damages. In fact, you and I both know that half the job representing our clients, if we are representing the injured party, is to maximize their recovery on the third-party case. And once we have that figure, either an award or a settlement negotiated with the claims adjuster or a policy limits payment, we then have to go back to the workers' comp carrier and negotiate as best we can how much they get back. Because our job, obviously, is not to recover 100% of the monies for the workers' comp company, but to maximize our client's recovery so that sometimes the harder part of resolving a third-party claim after you get the money from the third party is negotiating how much of this is for loss of consortium, how much is it for pain and suffering, uh, should there be an equitable reduction of the lien, does the law allow for that in the particular jurisdiction? So this can be extraordinarily complicated. Yes, 
It is. And I don't know about your practice, but in my practice, my firm, in addition to having a workers' compensation practice, we also represent our clients in the third-party matter. So in a sense, it's a little easier for me to negotiate these things because I have access to that information within my office. How do you handle that in your office? Do you refer out the third-party cases? You know, it, it all depends. We sometimes have the workers' comp component referred to us by the third-party attorney. Sometimes we do it in-house. And sometimes, if it's especially if it's a complex products liability case or a really catastrophic injury with all sorts of coverage and really complicated issues, we will refer it out to a firm that specializes in uh, that type of area. But yeah, um, it is helpful if it is in the same firm because you usually have a good handle on both the client as well as the workers' comp insurer. You know, I think one thing that's become apparent in our very brief discussion today is that this really is an important topic, and it varies from state to state. And Kathy, you, uh, in your program a couple of weeks ago, among your materials, I'm going to credit another law firm, uh, Matheson, M-A-T-T-H-I-E-S-E-N, Wickert, W-I-C-K-E-R-T, and Lehrer, L-E-H-R-E-R, They are in Wisconsin, Louisiana, and California. They put together a spreadsheet that starts with Alabama and ends with whoever the last state is, Wyoming. And we have all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So there's 51 special blocks here. And then across the line, statutory reference, exclusive, you know, who can bring the third party, who can intervene, what happens with future uh, credits, attorney's fees and costs. This is an invaluable tool to any of you on the defense side, as well as those of us in the claimants, where we might have a choice of jurisdictions. How would this, why would this be helpful to us if you had a Pennsylvania worker uh, to know how it might be in another state? So, for example, I can speak from personal experience. I had a truck driver client who got hurt in Pennsylvania, lived in South Carolina, but got injured in Georgia. <laughs> so out of those three states, Pennsylvania Workers' Comp provided the best workers' compensation coverage for him because Pennsylvania is a wage loss state. We have the highest calculation of his workers' comp benefits in our state, and also our medical is not as restrictive as some other states. So in that particular case, and it never came down to him having to make a choice, actually, because his employer chose to pay him Pennsylvania workers' compensation benefits. If the employer had chosen to pay him Georgia workers' comp, I might have counseled him to move his case to Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania benefits are better for him. But in that particular case, he was receiving Pennsylvania workers' compensation benefits but had his third-party case in Georgia. Georgia is a made-whole state. So what happened when he settled his third-party case in Georgia, the workers' compensation carrier in Pennsylvania could not file a lawsuit to assert their lien in Georgia against his third party. The way that they recovered some of their lien was to bring action in Pennsylvania. They did concede that they couldn't receive any of the back due monies that they paid him under workers' comp, but they made an assertion against the future workers' comp that they were paid because his settlement was in excess of whatever his lien was at that time. Mm-hmm. So in that particular case, what we did was we preserved his whole settlement in the third party because it was relatively significant. And we negotiated a settlement with the workers' comp carrier so that they would forego 
all of their future credit, and then they paid him a small lump sum to wrap up his case, and then he was able to sever his rights with his workers' comp carrier. Fascinating. For those of you who would like a copy, and I'm taking uh, the liberty of uh, offering to disseminate uh, this um, comparison of subrogation rights in all 50 states, you can find it at www.mwl-law.com. That is the Matheson-Wickert-Lehrer website. Or you could send an email to me, and I can email you a copy. My email address is apierce, A-P-I-E-R-C-E, at pplaw.com. That's apierce at pplaw.com. At this point, I think we're going to conclude. Kathy, I know we've barely scratched the surface and all the permutations and wrinkles that could come up uh, case by case when you do have an accident and somebody else other than the employer is negligent and how you carve up the pie, so to speak. But you've given us a, a good heads up, a good start. And the important thing here is you really have to know what your jurisdiction provides, what rights the insurance company has, and what rights the injured worker has. Any final words, Kathy, before we wrap up? No, I just want to echo what Alan said, that when you have a workers' comp matter with a third party, to make sure that the attorney that represents you knows what is best for you uh, as far as not just the workers' comp, but also the third party. Because as we discussed, there are, are very many variables involved in this. And we want, and our job is to maximize your recovery in total. Okay, well, thank you, Kathy, for joining us today. And for those of uh, you who listen, uh, thank you very much. And we look forward to presenting our next show here on Workers' Comp Matters and the Legal Talk Network. So thank you for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Somm. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.